Everyone in Fairview knows the story. Pretty and popular high school senior Andy Bell was murdered by her boyfriend, Saul Singh, who then killed himself. It was all anyone could talk about. And five years later, Pip sees how the tragedy still haunts her town. But she can't shake the feeling that there was more to what happened that day. She knew Saul when she was a child, and he was always so kind to her. How could he possibly have been the murderer? Now, a senior herself, Pip decides to re-examine the case for her final project. At first, just to cast doubt on the original investigation. But soon she discovers a trail of dark secrets that might actually prove Saul innocent. And the line between past and present begins to blur. Someone in Fairview doesn't want Pip digging around for answers. And now her own life might be in danger. The New York Times bestselling series, A Good Girl's Guide to Murder. Everyone is talking about this addictive, must-read mystery series with shades of serial and making a murderer, about an investigation turned obsession, full of twists and turns with an ending you'll never expect. The perfect nail-biting mystery, says Natasha Preston, number one New York Times best-selling author. The book pulled me into it so hard that I forgot everything going on around me. I just needed to solve the murder with Pip, says Pop Sugar Media. Dark, dangerous, and intricately plotted, my heart literally pounded, says Laura Stephen, the author of The Exact Opposite of OK. Fans of true crime will be hooked by the hunt for a killer, but there's more to this guide than just a whodunit. It's a story of families, community, and the ways a crisis can turn them against one another in the blink of an eye, says Book Page magazine. Language, English. Format, hardcover. Pages, 400. Reading age, 14 to 17 years. <laughs> Reading age, 14 to 17 years. I mean, at 14 years old, you might have hair growing in strange places. You're definitely embarrassed by your parents for the next 10 to 15 years, and you've got hormones all over the map, but you're still some 11 years away from a fully developed and mature prefrontal cortex. Well, what in the world is that? I don't, I don't know. Well, let's ask WebMD. The development of the prefrontal cortex is very important for complex behavioral performance as this region of the brain helps accomplish executive brain functions. As a whole, the frontal lobe where the prefrontal cortex resides is responsible for higher cognitive functions such as memory, emotions, impulse control, problem solving, social interaction, and motor function. And so it begs the question, at what age should we subject our youth to a good girl's guide to murder? I mean, developmentally, it shouldn't really factor into their journey to adulthood and drastically shape who they are and how they think and who they might become, right? Well, I guess when you think about it, we've We've already subjected our kids to murder at an age far earlier than 14 to 17 years. Like Ursula, you know, she murders a bunch of crustaceans in The Little Mermaid. And at least there's justice as she's impaled on the uh, splintery, splintery bow of a, a wrecked ship. And, and hey, I guess that's what you get with a, a G-rated Disney movie. Or then a walrus murders 12 oyster children in Alice in Wonderland. Probably would have tasted better if they were charbroiled. But then Captain Hook, 
casually murders two pirates in Peter Pan because, well, dead men tell no tales, right? And then the hunter murders Bambi's mom. And okay, I get it, you NRA card-carrying members, you prefer the term bagged or downed or tagged or even harvested. And how can we forget Las Avenas, circle of life, <laughs> as Scar murders his own brother in The Lion King? Somehow murder fascinates us and has, has reached its tentacles of fascination into how we raise children and how we occupy our time. And sure, the distance between us and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus, it might seem distant, but maybe it's not so distant after all. And then maybe it actually has nothing to do with Netflix or The Lion King or A Good Girl's Guide to Murder. Maybe it has nothing to do with society or media or culture. Maybe it has everything to do with us being as good as dead when it comes to our life and love. Today, as we continue our sermon series called Real Faith, Real Relationships, our study in 1 John, we're going to talk about murder and hate and evil and love and life. And we might come to the harsh reality that perhaps in our experience, and our ways of real faith and real relationships, maybe they've actually been counterfeit, like forged or fake or phony, because real faith and real relationships are only possible by real love. Well, how do we get there? Well, let's find out. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11 says, This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, sure, there's the commandment we see in Leviticus, but even long before that, way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, what's the first thing that God does to the newly created human beings? It says in verse, verse 28 of Genesis 1, then God blessed them. So the first thing that God does to them is he blesses them and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And then fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said in verse 29, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. So in short, paraphrase, eat up. A minor paraphrase, but yeah, like dig in, bone apple tea, a plant-based diet, that is. But crazy, right? The first commands that God gives to the human beings, have a lot of sex, and eat a lot of food. I mean, that's what it says, Genesis 1, 28 and 29. Not some casual hookup or merely just an exchange of genetic material for the purposes of procreation, but something beautiful, something rooted in love. Footnote, in the context of marriage. But this is the message you have heard from the beginning. As far back as Genesis chapter 1, we should love one another. Sounds easy, right? Give it three chapters. Verse 12a says, we must not be like Cain in Genesis chapter 4, just a couple chapters later, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. Killed? Like killed, really? Maybe it's just, you know, semantics, but the Greek verb sphazo, it means something like to slaughter. 
or, or either you know, animals or persons in context referring to persons, the implication is one of, of violence and mercilessness. It's how Revelation describes what happened to Jesus. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used to describe what Elijah does to the 450 prophets of Baal. And then also in the Old Testament, it's what Jehu does to Ahab's 70 sons. You know, he severs their heads off of their heads and, you know, stack them nice and neat like a display at home goods there at the, the city gates of Samaria. It's Fazo, slaughter, not, not harvest, not tag or bag, but slaughter, or more precisely in Cain's case, murder. Verse 12b says, and why did he kill, uh, slaughter, or more precisely, murder him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. Genesis chapter 4, let's, let's go back there. Now Adam had sexual relations with his wife. Wow, like obedient right there to the first command that God gives. Have a lot of sex and then, well, eat a lot of food as well. Be fruitful and multiply. And he's doing it. He's being obedient with his wife. But man, they screw it up. <laughs> they screw up the whole fruit serpent thing, but they nail this. And she became pregnant. When she gave birth to Cain, she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. Just call him a farmer. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops. Cain presented some of his crops. Cain presented some of his crops. Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs of his flock. The best portions of the firstborn lambs of his flock. The best portions of the firstborn lambs of his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look dejected? Well, I mean, to be honest, Abel, he took those, you know, grass-fed organic meats and smoked them on the Traeger 15 to 20 hours. Cain, you, you showed up with a wilted side salad. You, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. And so Cain did. No! One day Cain suggested to his brother, hey, let's, uh, let's go out into the fields. I mean, this is straight up premeditated Fargo CSI murder stuff right here. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him, eh, slaughtered, or more precisely, murdered him. Well, we might say after hearing a, a murder story like this, uh, as we dive into this, like we might say, well, um, look at the fi family dynamic. You know, take a look at his parents. His parents, they, they were the ones who actually initiated an entire cycle of sin. Or, you know, let's examine his extracurricular activities. It seems like he was really into a, a good girl's guide to murder. It says ages 14 to 17. Or in truth, he was subjected to the murderous influence of Little Mermaid and Lion King at, his, uh, at a young age. And, and while that might be true, while that might hold true that it's 
like society or media or culture's fault. Cain's actions are his own responsibility. It has less to do with the fact that he brought a wilted side salad and more, more to do with his heart turning toxic. It turns him into a monster, which is a favorite term of true crime podcast hosts, an inhumanely cruel or wicked person, a monster. And now in both early Christian and Jewish writings, the term used to describe this type of behavior, inhumanely cruel or wicked, it isn't monster, it's Cain. Cain becomes the prototype for those who deliberately disbelieve, a model for the opponents of the early church because of their failure to love the brothers and sisters, because of their lack of real love. We must not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. I mean, a brother can turn on brother pretty dang early on. It shouldn't come as a surprise to us that the world might hate you. Because Christians should naturally counter the ways of faithless culture. Christians should actually go against the grain of a godless society. Or even more so, Christians should resolutely defy a lackluster cultural Christianity that believes that goodness equals godliness and health and wealth equals blessing and that our good beliefs will save us. Wait, what? I thought like that's what Christianity is all about, that, that it's all about belief. No. No, it's putting our faith in Christ and acting upon those beliefs. You know, say, well, what do you believe? Well, uh, yeah, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, He sent His Son, Jesus, to come to earth, show us how to live. He, he lived and He died on a cross and He rose from the grave. And, and those are the central beliefs of salvation. No! No, th those are the central beliefs of demons. Demons will believe that God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that His Son Jesus came to earth to give His life as a ransom for many, to die on a cross and rise from the grave. Those are the beliefs of demons. That's demon theology. I don't think they're Christian. It's not a good belief that saves you. It's faith and faith and faith. Are you putting your trust in that? Are you putting your, your hope and your life and your entire soul into that? If so, it should come as no surprise to Jesus' followers that the world might hate you. You're shocked? Nah. <laughs> but wow, check it out. Verse 14, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Strange, though, how at the moment the world knows that we are Christians by our political agendas, by embezzling or sexual scandals. Maybe that's why much of Europe and the East Coast is starting to look more like a, a graveyard for churches. Turn it into a museum, you know, better yet, a, a brewery, uh, since after all, a person who has no love is still dead. Maybe that's why... Churches wither and dissolve and die. We've lost the will to 
to live and to love. And oh, it, you know, it gets worse as we continue with the text, or tougher with one more verse. But then I promise you, it, it, gets, it gets to hope after that. But verse 15 says, Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. He, uh, he asked for two pints of mint chocolate chip ice cream with chocolate sprinkles. It was mid-afternoon, June 9th, 2001. That morning, he had been transferred from his 8x10 cell into the red brick death house some 500 feet away. It was a place that few prisoners ever go, one from which none ever return. Inside the red brick death house, Timothy McVeigh was placed in isolation one last day in a tiny dismal cell. At 1 p.m., the guards delivered his last meal. He ate both pints of ice cream without stopping. What did he care if he felt sick later? He'd be dead. The warden had allowed him to surf basic cable news networks. He was glued to them. CNN, MSNBC, he saw his own face looking back at him. News anchors with spray-on tans said McVeigh was scheduled to die at 8 a.m. the next morning, New York time. They talked to family members of his victims, mothers whose children had died at daycare, blown to bits by a 5,000-pound bomb parked outside in a rented rider truck. They didn't understand Nobody understood. He was, in every expression of the word, a murderer at heart. And I think it's hard to gulp down that I am Timothy McVeigh. That I am Timothy McVeigh. It's that serious, according to 1 John. I don't think it's society or media or a culture's fault. I don't think it's Netflix or The Lion King or A Good Girl's Guide to Murder's Fault. It's mine. I am Timothy McVeigh. 1 John 3.15 says, Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really Timothy McVeigh at heart. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really John Wayne Gacy Jr. at heart. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really Jeffrey Dahmer at heart. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really Charles Manson at heart. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really Ted Bundy at heart. You may say, no, 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 that, that's, that's not me. That's not me. I'm not a murderer. I don't hate people. It's just a, like a strong distaste, like an irritation or you know, an in, indifference toward them. How are you loving them? Indifferently? Irritatedly? With a, a strong distaste? That's not love. That's not love. I think First John is very serious about hate because the opposite comes from God. And if the love of Jesus in our hearts makes us alive, if we've been loved in such a way that Jesus has loved us, what excuse have we not to love? God saves and loves sinners, only sinners. And so must we. 
It's not that we murderers in our hate can't come to Jesus, repent, have faith, and be saved. The point is that those in the murderous lifestyle of hatred show they haven't passed from death to life. They're just stuck in hateful death and death-dealing ways. But here is real love in verse 16. We know what real love is. Because Jesus gave up his life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus gave up his life as a voluntary sacrifice. Don't ever believe that it was taken from him. For he himself said in John chapter 10, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. Jesus was always completely in control of the situation surrounding his arrest and trials and crucifixion. Jesus gave up his life for us. And it sounds valiant when I think about it. Like, oh yes, I shall too if the occasion arises. I must honorably lay down my life for thine fair lady or lad. I shall. Sounds magical. Sounds like fantasy-like or fairy tale-ish in the way that it tickles our fancies and, and strokes our messiah complexes until we're met with verse 17. And, and maybe if I just read it real fast, like we can pretend like it's not there. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how how can God's love be in that person? No. If someone has enough money to live well, and that, that's not just cash in the bank. The Greek is bios. It's like your substance to live, your property, your material goods, all the things that we have in this first world. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Oh dear, not quite really what I had in mind. <laughs> Little gritty for my taste, too much to ask. I, I was thinking like more of the, you know, theoretical giving up my life. You know, like I will uh, give up emotionally or, you know, psychologically I will give up. But this, like, oh, wait, hold, hold up a second. A moment ago you were willing to lay down your life. Note the vivid contrast with Jesus in verse 17. Jesus was willing to lay down his very life. But Jeremy, you're not even willing to lay down part of your God-given material possessions for the sake of your brothers and sisters in need. Love is said to be expressed in giving one's own life for the sake of another. And hatred is the exact opposite, taking someone else's life. Okay, then so like which category does withholding fall? Like where, where, where do I put the hoarding? What column does that go in? Where do I put, well, this, this is mine. In love or in hatred for one in need? I don't want to have a demon theology, a set of beliefs without faithful action. I don't want to have a faithless faith for a faith that only talks about God's love, but never acts upon it. A faith that talks about God's love, but never gives it away. It rather kills instead of making alive. And it shows how true it is that faith without works is dead. But what if we 
flipped the script? What if we flipped the script? What if our world and our cities and our communities could begin to know that we are Christians by our love? But is the cost worth it? Each night he falls asleep beneath a tin roof surrounded by mud walls and dirt floors. And when the sun crests the mountains in the morning, there's the rising worry of whether there'll be enough beans for breakfast. He's two years old and his parents' $59 a month wages can hardly keep malnutrition at bay. And yet somehow, Alexis has made it through one of the most vulnerable times in life for a human living in poverty. He made it past his first birthday. At this age, having someone to love and take care of him can still mean the difference between life and death. That's why your sponsorship provides for a trained survival specialist from his local church to visit him every month at home. Your sponsorship of Alexis provides him with Bible teaching, medical checkups, health education, nutritious meals, birthday celebrations, sports tournaments, academic reinforcement, homework help, and handicraft workshops. The center will also provide health and nutrition education and evangelism for the parents of Alexis. He's been waiting six 115 days for as first john says for someone who has enough money to live well see this child in need and show compassion but is the cost worth it it's 38 bucks a month and i mean that's a lot a whole dollar and 27 cents per day she has special needs which uh, makes life tremendously easy in Kilgoris, Kenya, where the common health problems include malaria, respiratory infections, worms, typhoid, diarrhea, HIV, AIDS, and tuberculosis. Her father is sometimes employed as a, a day laborer or one for odd jobs. He, he sure brings home the bacon, a whole uh, equivalent of $10 per month. But Sharon... She loves group games and listening to Bible stories and running errands for her family. And as an 11-year-old with special needs, she has the academic equivalent of an average third grader. Third grader. But you know, since English is her first language, how much would it warm your heart to receive a letter from her in English? That is, as 1 John says, if someone who has enough money to live well sees this child in need and shows compassion. Your sponsorship will provide Sharon with Bible teaching, health and hygiene education, fellowship, retreats and seminars. And oh yeah, it's her birthday today. She just turned 12. But is the cost worth it? It's 38 bucks a month, the cost of a gallon of gas almost. A sliver of plywood, just about. No, it's actually like the monthly cost of Netflix and Amazon and Hulu, but it actually helps someone you need. Because real faith and real relationships are only possible by love. And it's all about that, that real and authentic and pure and genuine stuff in life we're after, isn't it? Well, James 1.27 says pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for 
orphans. Wow. Desri from Indonesia, which has a 9.87% Christian population, 9.87%. She's an orphan. But she loves dolls and singing. And at four years old, she's too young to go to school, but she helps by cleaning and running errands. And your sponsorship provides Desri with Bible teaching, Sunday school, picnics, health screening, supplemental food, indoor-outdoor games, hygiene and health education, retreats, talent development, leadership training, service opportunities, educational assistance, life skills training, computer classes, mentoring programs, and educational field trips. Maybe you don't think twice about giving these things to kids in the U.S., but is the cost worth it? If it is, snap the QR code. Visit Compassion.com, sponsor a child today. You know, if we ever had some sort of requirements for membership for Journey to Church, I would put this near the top of the list. Because what if, what if Alexis or Sharon or Desri could know that we are Christians by our love? I get it. You know, they're thousands and thousands of miles away, not concerned about baristas who screw up their orders and what more they can order from Amazon Prime with next day shipping. But what if the simple act of sponsorship of real faith, real relationships, and real love could initiate an entire transformation in us to bring about life instead of death to Peru and Kenya and Indonesia and consequently our own community too? For a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. That's what it says in Proverbs 1, Proverbs 11.25. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Why do you care about a two-year-old in Peru? Jesus gave up his life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Why do you care about a special needs girl in Kenya? Yeah, it's her birthday, but Jesus gave up his life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Why do you care about an orphan in Indonesia? It's 8,000 miles away. Jesus gave up his life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. Why do you care about a widowed 90-year-old next-door neighbor? Why do you care about a school? that can't provide their kids with, with the funds to produce a garden for learning? Why do you care about the lonely people who live across the street at the nursing home? Why do you care about the families that look fine on the outside but that they're bleeding within? Why do you care about the single mom who can't pay her rent? Why do you care about the janitor who needs a, a donation of blood or bone marrow or kidney? Why do you care about the 20-something floundering in life trying to figure out which way to go? Why do you care about the teenager dealing with depression so dark that no one understands. Jesus gave up his life for us, so we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so many times, so many times I feel like I leave you off without a clear-cut direction for application. Often I'm like, well, you're smart, like figure it out. Well, maybe it's time that we figure it out. In a world so fascinated with death and death dealing, in a society, media, culture so enamored with Cain, where we're easily as good as dead in terms of our life and love, what if we flipped the script? 
It won't read like everyone in Fairview knows the story. Pretty and popular high school senior Andy Bell was murdered by her boyfriend, Saul Singh, who then killed himself. It was all anyone could talk about. It won't be an addictive must-read mystery with shades of cereal and making a murder. It won't be the perfect nail-biting mystery. It won't be dark, dangerous, and intricately plotted. It won't be a story of families, community, and the way a crisis can turn them against one another in the blink of an eye. It won't be a New York Times bestseller, but it'll be worth it. Because real faith and real relationships are only possible by real love. Let's pray for that. Jesus, I ask that you would flood our hearts with compassion, with love. Jesus, I pray that you would transform the ways that we've been doing things. Maybe they've been fake or forged or phony. But I pray for real faith and real relationships. So God, I pray that you would show us the way. How do we love this world one person at a time? Give us your eyes to see. Not the media, not the culture, not the system of the way of the world, but your ways, God. We want to be your hands and feet. We want to be your people who aren't self-consumed, but are God-consumed that Jesus, you would be the driving force in our lives, the factor that everything depends upon. So Holy Spirit, do your work in us, whether it means convicting or challenging, inspiring, encouraging, or giving us the will to innovate and influence around us. We love you and we praise you, Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.